Bam 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 Hey everybody, welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. We hope. I am Lisa Linky across the town, across the internet, across the ethernet. But right in your cosmos. <laughs> yes, but right in my heart is my co-host, a dear friend, Misty Stinnett. Hi. And this is a podcast where we review a popular self-help book. Each episode on our full Frontal Fridays. Oh, I said it. You did it. And we talk about what we think and feel about it. I usually say what I hate about it. But we give you the tips and tricks and ups and downs and all the goodies (laughs) and all the baddies in under an hour. Because nobody has time for more than that. But in that hour, you'll know whether this is a great book for you to spend your energy and resources in supporting the author. Um, And there will be a link to the book in show notes. Or if this is a hot, as Jake Tapper would say, hot mess inside dumpster fire inside a train wreck, and you should avoid it at all. Oh, that hot. feels right. That really resonates. It feels timely. Yeah, the timestamp <laughs> the episode, this is October 10th. Yeah. Um, and so when you listen to this episode, it may the world may look very, very different. And just know that right now in this moment, that's how we feel. But either way, you might be able to glean a nugget or two self-help advice that you've been craving or somebody's been really urgently pressing upon you to get for you. Or dropping teeny tiny Um, small hints and you're like, what is up with my friend? Just look inward. They've been forwarding you Instagram posts of like self-help stuff and you're like, I didn't ask for this. That's Back off, Janet. And then Thank you. Following next Tuesday, we'll have our weekly beef episode where we will follow up with homework that we will be assigned from this book by our co-hosts. Hopefully, maybe it'll be easy. Who knows? Maybe it'll be excruciating. And in addition, we'll have maybe some articles or questions or thought-provoking questions. I lovingly call you provokes. Or just we want to check in and chat. So that's what we'll do on Tuesdays. But today is a Friday. And Misty, what book do you have for us this week? Oh, oh boy, do I have a doozy diddly dee for you. You're welcome. <laughs> diddly dee. You can already tell this, this episode is going to be loosey-goosey, friends. Buckle in. Okay. Today, I am bringing you... How to Be an Imperfectionist, The New Way to Self-Acceptance, Fearless Living, and Freedom from Perfectionism by Stephen Guise. And this was published. Okay, and to be fair. Yes. We have called it something else between the two of us. (laughs) Okay. So I texted Lisa, hey, as a heads up, the next book I'm going to read is called How to Be an Imperfectionist. But I had an egregious typo. So it looked like I said, how to be an (laughs) Imlerfectionist. And I immediately was like, nope, not going to correct it because now I'm leaning into being an imperfectionist. So it's been on our spreadsheet. And that's all. <laughs> I I refuse to call it anything else. And always in all caps, Imlerfection. Okay, great. I really feel like they missed a, an opportunity in the title to I not really misspell do. imperfectionist. So this book was published in May of 2015. So that is where we are on this self-help time continuum. And I would say a lot of things have changed since 2015, even <laughs> even the way. Oh, did you notice? Uh, <laughs> I think most of us in 2020 have been forced to reckon with how to be an Imlerfectionist yeah. simply because we can't get flour 
or toilet paper <laughs> or masks, at least at some point. During or protection the from the government. We, you know. So <laughs> totally. Thank you. Misty, if you could summarize the premise of this book in one sentence, although I think the title does it, give it to me. Change your definition of success and you will be set free from perfectionism. Oh, well, my definition of success is surviving the day. Then you are so perfect, which ironically, you should <laughs> be an imperfect. Imlerfectionist. You're an imlerfectionist. Everybody, <laughs> welcome. And listen, let's use hashtag imlerfectionist for, <laughs> for this episode on Instagram. Just change the P to an L. Oh, we got some snorts. Excuse me. Excuse me. Okay. I don't know why that got me. I'm so glad. Uh, Listen, again, and this is a great segue because the bar is low for humor these days. (laughs) So I'm already being successful. We'll take it anywhere we can get it. So what's it going to cost me to learn how to be an imperfectionist? Let me tell you, if you want the hardcover, you're shit out of luck because it is not that kind of book. (laughs) The paperback (laughs) is $14.24. The Kindle is only $5.99. The audiobook, $13.97 or one credit. And I couldn't find it in my OverDrive app, which is the library app. So, Well, librarians tend to be lermectionists. Lermectionist? Mm-hmm. I'm leaving it. Perfectionist or Lermectionist? <laughs> okay, I love I'm it. I'm taking my cue from the book and I'm leaving it. I love it. Okay, so here are my quick first impressions. This book is extremely practical. It is not woo-woo at all. There is neither a woo nor a woo. And it is 167 pages and the audiobook is five hours and 49 minutes. Now, you all know if you've been with us for some time that I think in the last year I've read, read maybe like three books. So you know I listen to this audiobook because I'm, I'm an auditory learner. And I like to sort of like multitask and absorb that way. So the audiobook is narrated by a man called Daniel Penns. And while his voice is pleasant and clear, and he is this like mega voice actor with Emmys, he just sounds like he's talking down to me all the time. And I think this is why do you keep making mistakes, Mr. Well, it's it, like I think it's a combination of the writing and then his performance mm-hmm. because I've lit, I've heard mm-hmm. his voice narrate other audiobooks and it didn't have the same effect, but it's very much like well, back when I was struggling, da 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 da, oh, you know. So it's a, no, it feels no, 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 it felt no, no, a little no. self-righteous. So you might have an easier time if that's something that bothers you reading the actual text. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the author. I tried to pull some things from his website, but even his about section is muddy and you have to go to like another post and read like a meandering story to kind of piece some things together. So I did my best. So according to this kind of meandering blog post, he started out interested in exploring personal development and had been writing Facebook notes about life for a few years. And after he was, yep. And after he was rejected from multiple jobs, he started a blog. After a while, he was doing guest blog posts, submitting to other places. And one of the guest posts he wrote on another website went viral. And that's how he started to get some traction for his own blog. So those are clearly muddy credentials, but there's also this tidbit from Stephen Guise's author profile on amazon.com. Stephen Guise is an international best-selling author, blogger, and entrepreneur. His books have been translated into 17 languages. 
As an author, Guise is known for delivering highly actionable, world-class behavior change strategies in a humorous rapper. Stephen lives near Disney World in Orlando, Florida, which felt like such a specific anecdote. Like, I live near the KFC in Culver City, California. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> so if that feels just a little bit awkward to you, let me tell you welcome to the writing style of Stephen Guise. Yeah, because basically he just took blog posts and pasted it into a book. Okay, so the book has 10 chapters, one, Introduction, two, The Perfectionist Mind, three, The Poison of Perfectionism, four, The Freedom of Imperfectionism, five, Unrealistic Expectations, six, Rumination, seven, Need for Approval, eight, Concern over Mistakes, nine, Doubts about Actions, ten, Your Application Guide. Oh, I should mention. I'm really proud that you didn't say imperfection for all of those. Oh, I, I, I feel. Should we redo it? <laughs> no. I miss. No. This is why you're the professional comedy actor and I am not. I should mention that he is the international best selling author of a book called Mini Habits, which apparently is like people love it. I mean, people just absolutely love it. I need you to clarify. Did you say mini or ninny? <laughs> Mini and my habits. landlord is getting up to get a closer listen because we were unclear. <laughs> mini as in I would tiny. read. I would read Ninny Habits. I would say you are but a I ninny. I wouldn't read Ninny Habits. Thank you. I have many habits. I don't really know what a ninny is, but you feel like one. Let's start off by first defining perfectionism because if we don't start there, we're going to be lost the whole time. Perfectionism. What is a perlectionist? Oh, yeah, sorry. Lurfectionism is a noun. It means a disposition to regard anything short of perfection as unacceptable. And I believe this is the author's uh the author's definition. So sure, sure, sure. he says that perfectionism is treated too casually by too many people, and that it's actually a gaping wound that is disguised as an accessory. So in <laughs> Why are you laughing? I'm sorry. He said it was a gaping wound disguised as an accessory. Correct. That vision is (laughs) terrible. Hi, do you like my new purse? It's a gaping wound. No, you go, oh, hi. Have you seen my new earrings? Giant, huge gap. Giant cut on my neck. Do you love it? Does it match my dress? Too much? (laughs) No. So in the first part of the book, he covers topics like unrealistic expectations, rumination, need for approval, concern over mistakes, doubts about actions. And he walks us through all of the ways that perfectionism can harm us. And some of these ways include procrastination, doubt, fear, depression, and even bodily harm like eating disorders, right? Because we think, oh, there's a perfect way to look or the perfect weight to be at or the perfect outfit to have, perfect house, you know, all of these things. And the common themes in all of the chapters are lack of confidence and fear of failure is seems to be what he says are underneath most of the types of of perfectionism. And he offers practical solutions or mindset reframes for each of these. And he recaps his solutions at the end of each chapter. And then at the end of the book, he recaps all of the recaps in one master summary. So as far as structure goes... you just needed to listen to the master summary. Quick question. Is this motherfucker trying to give medical advice about how to 
correct your eating disorder? No, oh, no, 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 no. He just says perfectionism should not be treated casually because look at the very real physical harm it can do to our health. For example, eating disorders. And he mentioned something else that I don't remember. So he's just using it to highlight as an example. And then he pivots away and says, now here's how you can combat the different types of perfectionism in a general sense. I don't like that. I'll be honest with you. I don't like that. It's kind of, I think he's speaking out of turn. And to just say this is what causes this huge area of, that's like saying perfectionism causes cancer. It's like, no, motherfucker, shut up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he was just saying it can be a part of that. Like, it can be a part of the system that overall contributes that. Like, I absolutely agree with you. It is way more multidimensional than that and way more complex. I do think that a lot of the things that we feel really bad about ourselves for, productivity-wise, physically, mentally, looks-wise, does have to do with we feel like we should be hitting certain benchmarks. And why do we feel like that? You know, like, have we set our expectations too high? Have we set, is it capitalism, you know, that's kind of driving this unattainable thing in us? Yeah, I want to continue because I know we want to get to it, but I am just going to, shocker, spoiler alert, early on place my objection to that whole mindset and frame because it's not an individual's fault that they feel they lack because of what consumerism and advertising has made the quote standard or normal because that is just a fabricated image that's rooted in white supremacy and capitalism. (laughs) So I'm not going to say that people are failing because they are too now perfectionistic. It's once again, blaming the victim. And so I don't buy into that, but I do understand that perfectionism can also cause problems in, in our you know, kind of standard MO. So I, I agree, but also I think that's just such a broad stroke and it's to sell books. Yeah. So I actually don't think and did not get the sense as I was listening to this book that he is saying, this is your fault because you're a perfectionist. He frames it in the larger, why are we all perfectionists? We live in a society that tells us we have to reach certain benchmarks and we hold up you know, people who have these huge accomplishments as the norm, those sorts of things. So I'm going to push back a little bit because maybe it's just the way that I am relaying the information in the book, but it never, it did not feel victim blaming at all. He was just saying, hey, we live in a world where this seems to be perfectly accepted, if not valued throughout society. And here's, here's the ways in which that system actually harms us. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. He does then go on to fill a book full of things on how to fix yourself, which is just kind of exacerbating. Well, no, I mean, how to, how to combat a perfectionist <laughs> mindset and where do we get mindsets? Usually from places outside of us, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, I th- yeah, I think it's kind of like a chicken and egg, right? Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, let's just, let's move forward from here. But like, I think sometimes this is, this is the product of doing a book summary instead of you reading the whole book. Like I am just distilling these down to these nuggets, but it's part of, yeah, a six hour audiobook, right? Okay. So this whole book is centered around the idea that perfectionism hinders us from taking action. He says, if we wait for the perfect moment to take perfect action, we can end up waiting forever and lose out in the game of business and in life. So for example, if you set a goal that you want to write 1,000 words of quality material every single day, 
and you feel like you have to do it in an ideal setting, like at your desk when you're well-slept and you've got good coffee at your side and the house is perfectly quiet, blah, 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 you will likely never or hardly ever get that work done on a consistent basis. But instead, if you approach your goals more casually with an imperfect mindset, something like, I just have to write for five minutes today and the quality doesn't matter and the environment doesn't matter, then you will actually work towards your goal much more consistently. So he says that this kind of thinking will train your mind in actually sitting down and doing the task, whatever the task is, and will also help you overcome your fear of trying. So basically, imperfection makes us action-oriented, according to this author. So I'm going to go a little bit out of order and share some of the big ideas of the book because he actually leaves some of the biggest ideas for the end, and it just felt like it could get buried. So this is the crux of his argument for imperfectionism over perfectionism. He says it's not the literal consequences of failure that scare us. We actually fear what failure means about us. We fear that failure will expose our weaknesses and damage our hopes and dreams. He says perfectionism is so rampant because it protects us from this kind of symbolic failure. If we never attempt something, we can't know for sure that we aren't great at it. It protects us from massively damaging our confidence and our hopes. But then he asks, do you actually want and need this type of protection? Protection often weakens what it protects, he says, and making mistakes usually have short-term downsides and long-term upsides. So he uses the analogy of like muscle fibers that get torn down through effort, but then are rebuilt stronger. Or how if you make a mistake, you then learn better for next time. Okay, so idea number one, redefine success as progress. So where does perfectionism come from, one might ask? According to the author, there are several sources, including insecurity, inferiority complex, and unrealistic expectations. He uses the example of- And your butt. And your butt. God, I'm so glad you said it. I think we were all thinking it. He uses the example of grades in school. So a C is meant to indicate an average grade, but it feels like most of us have morphed into believing that anything less than an A is somehow subpar, right? Even though a C is meant to be like, cool, you're an average person. So when we achieve anything less than all straight A's, we feel bad about ourselves and feel like maybe we're not worthy or we're not doing good work. Sorry, no. Cool, you're an average person is not <laughs> is not really, no, that's not what anybody wants to hear at all, ever in their no, life. No, but according to Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, as soon as we realize we're not special, that's when we actually start working hard to try to stand out, so... There's that dose. Well, of. I would also argue that most grading scales aren't set up to, you know, most people don't grade on a curve, right? So most professors and most high school teachers and most classes, I would say, are set up so that just completing your assignments can get you a C, right? Like just turning them in can get you a C or a B, right? So there isn't a lot of and I may if you're a teacher, please let me know if you disagree with that, maybe until you hit the college level. But I feel like in middle school and high school, it's truly more about effort than actual like content. Yeah, I don't know. I just know that anytime I got a B, I was like, well, fuck, you know? Well, shit. 
So he says that goal size is indicative of perfectionism and that most of us make the grave error of defining partial success as failure. So if I, for the day, like think about my insane to-do lists, I might get 80% through a to-do list. But if I don't complete it, I'm like, wow, I really did not take full advantage of the day rather than being like, amazing, I got through 80% of my tasks. So that's hard. That's hard to be in that mindset, I find. It's not exciting. Yeah. I also think that like, truthfully, that's also part of youth where you have a lot of energy. And as you get older, my mom used to say this, I've said this before on this podcast, but like, as you get older, you just care less about that stuff. Like you still kind of judge yourself for it a little bit, but also you're more realistic about what you put on your list. And you know, like you put 10 things on your list, but you know, you're not going to get to all Yeah. I'm like right in the thick of really starting to understand what I can truly accomplish in a day and what I cannot. And I'm really looking forward to the day where I'm good at that so that I don't feel disappointed in myself at the end of each day. Yeah. Or we actually start to make accurate lists. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is like, once I have accurate, you know, and I'm like, no, this task will take two hours and I will be tired after. Do not schedule four more tasks. So the idea is to redefine success as progress. And the main way to do that is to lower the bar you have for your goals and your tasks, he says. For example, a perfectionist way of thinking might be, if I don't have 30 full minutes to go lift weights at my gym, then it won't be a good workout and I might as well not do it. He says that you could instead try this way of thinking, which is the imperfectionist way of thinking. If I do one push-up today, I will have exercised and I will count that as exercising. I love that. He says that I love that. I, I do too. He says that not only will this help you actually progress, but you'll get more frequent feelings of accomplishment and you'll train your brain into daily action toward your goals. He says, make success easier than failure and you will succeed. Redefine success as progress. Instead of expecting perfect results, the imperfectionist expects perfect progress. Idea number two make your dreams casual. He says that if something is important to you, it should be your goal to make it casual. The key to getting a behavior to stick is to make it a habit. Habits are what you do every day and they're casual. Don't make the things you most want to do special occasions and lower the bar for action. For example, choose to write five words a day instead of an entire perfect chapter and do it anywhere, on the bus, in the passenger seat of a car while you're waiting in line for your coffee. This will give you many more opportunities for progress than if you can only write when you have time for a whole chapter, et cetera. And he mentions this idea that once you write five words, chances are you'll write 10. Or if you do one or two push-ups, maybe that day you'll be like, okay, that's it. But sometimes you might be like, all right, I'm already doing it. I'll do 30. So sort of like a gateway <laughs> imperfectionist drug here. I do love the idea of somebody's like, oh, I can't, I can't carve out 30 minutes to go to the gym, but I can do 30 push-ups straight. (laughs) And somehow like a a guitarist playing heavy metal music has appeared behind him. (laughs) So RIP Eddie Van Halen. Idea number three, adopt a binary mindset. So he uses the analogy of analog signals versus binary signals, and I found this to be quite convoluted, but I'm I'm going to do my best to explain it. Analog signals have varying degrees of clarity when they come across the airwaves. 
They can be fuzzy or clear or somewhere in between. Binary signals either work or they don't. There's no varying degree of clarity or success. So he says we need to adopt a binary mindset with the tasks that we attempt. So here is an example of a binary task. You flip the light switch on. You either do it or you don't, right? There's not really an in-between where the lights are half on or half off. So he says that oftentimes we approach tasks with an analog mindset. For example, giving a speech. We think this has to be the perfect speech with perfect delivery and I can't look nervous and I can't mess up my words. And that puts a ton of pressure and fear on us. And often that's what keeps a lot of us from even trying. Instead, a binary approach to giving a speech would look something like this. If I get on stage and I speak one word, that is success. I have spoken publicly. (laughs) It's a speech. So reframing success as doing the task rather than focusing on how well you do it. So he says the point of this is that the more action you take, and yes, the more mistakes you make, the more you progress towards your goal and start increasing the quality of your work. So one way to check if you're in a binary mindset is to ask yourself, did the task happen or not? Instead of, well, how did the task go? So instead of seeing a situation as going from one poorly to 10 perfectly, see situations as zero or one. Zero, I didn't do it. One, I did it. Does that make sense? It does. Although he's asking you to focus on product, not process, which is a really interesting way. No, he, he to is look saying process. He's not though. He's saying do He's not focus. He's saying do not focus on how it went, which would be product. And process is, well, did I get up there and do it? And inherent in that is learn something from it. Okay. Right? Because if he was focused on product, it would be, well, how good of a speech was it? Were people captivated? Did I stumble? Right? I guess, but the way he frames it, it's literally the output, the getting up on stage and saying one word. But it's not the quality of the output. It is the process. I guess, but he's saying, yes. But the way he framed it was like, that's what prevents you from working on the speech is the process. Do you see what I mean? No, I'm sorry. I don't. I guess because like when I work with people to do speech, to do like to give speeches or presentations, the process is the preparation for the presentation. And so we focus on process, not product. Right. So I think to clarify a little bit here, because I think we're in a gray area. His whole thing is, if your expectation is all you have to do is get up on stage and speak, and it doesn't really matter how it goes, that's actually going to free you up to get on stage in the first place and try and do your best, but you're not going to hold yourself to this insane standard Yeah, I totally get that. I think that's wonderful. I think that does help you because I think what a lot of people experience is either the absolute fear of doing it or the fear of doing it prevents you from preparing at all, which is what he kind of mentioned earlier, which is why I'm confused. But I do understand like just if I get up on the stage and say one word, that's a success. Absolutely. That's a great way of viewing it. And then that mindset, yes, you're right. It's focusing on product or process versus what the audience experienced. To be fair, nobody in the working world gets to 
say that they got up on stage and give one word and in a speech and say that it was successful, right? Like that's grounds for termination yeah. or reprimand. Yeah. And you know, I think you're right. And it's, it's ironic because in creating this binary mindset, he's actually setting up maybe a problematic binary himself, which is if we set the bar for success, maybe somewhere in between, I got up and I said all the words that I planned to say, and I call that a success, right? Does that feel better than... Or I got through the speech without fainting, without vomiting, without running off the stage. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's a success. Or people didn't boo me. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. And he even says, like, you know, you might stammer when you're saying something profound and you might forget a word and you might lose your place. But if you got up and you did it, that's what matters because it's going to make you that much better for the next time. I guess my problem is that, you know, once again, and this boils down and for our LLLs, I'm so sorry, but it's, and this is what sells book in self-help is that it's applying one facet to every waking thing. And it just doesn't work that way. People struggle with presenting in public for myriad reasons. And so you can't just say it's because of perfectionism. Yeah, but he's, right? it, like, listen, he's using this as one example of somebody who wants to make a speech could get up and try, like lower the expectations. He's not necessarily saying like, this is how to overcome stage fright. I'm with you. It's just, you know, treating it like it exists in a vacuum is problematic for me. I know it is for you. Nothing is a binary. But this application of applying a binary thought to reduce your perfectionism seems to be helpful. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel like, and you're right, like it's never going to apply to every single situation. But I did find it kind of helping me as I'm like, okay, this doesn't have to be a perfect email. Just send the email. Did you send it or didn't? Like, did you try to communicate your idea or didn't you rather than, you know, agonizing over sending the perfect thing with the perfect tone and wit. I guess and here's how we're viewing it differently is when I hear perfectionism causing people problems, I'm thinking of my perfectionism prevented me from ever sending the email. Yes. And I hear my friend Misty who's like, well, I had to read it seven times before I sent it. But you, you are always going to send the email. You're never going to not send the email. Yeah, but there are a lot of people who would not send the email. And by the way, my life would be better if I didn't read every email seven times. I'd have seven times as much more time. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's the same story that we're that I'm struggling with, which everybody who's listened to this for more than seven episodes gets. Yeah, right? <laughs> Continue. Continue. Merci beaucoup. So last idea, idea number four, the last idea that I have pulled out of the book that I thought was resonant is this idea of creating success cycles. So he says, getting small rewards from completing tasks makes us more likely to repeat the task. Now that we've redefined success as progress, we can now raise our standards for consistency. He brings up the one push-up analogy here again, which he does throughout the book, and points out that once you get hooked on the consistent daily feeling of success, you will want to repeat the process and expand from there. He says, quantity is the path to quality, which is not something I've heard before. He says, when you can refine something over many attempts, approving it more with each iteration, you're bound to have greater success than if you meticulously planned out the perfect first try. 
This is interesting because it means those obsessed with quality should aim for higher quantity to achieve their end goal. So I do push back on this a little bit. I like the idea of creating success cycles, but as we know from deliberate practice, you cannot just get up and throw a basketball at a hoop and hope it goes in for 10,000 hours and think you're going to be Michael Jordan. You, it has to be a focus on deliberate practice. I'm also thinking about James Clear talking about habits. You know, when I'm thinking of him saying like mini goals and then I'm kind of thinking about like stacking, right? Mm -hmm. Like success, success cycles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking about how like he's right. One success makes you want to do it again. And I think that's, it seems like they're a little cumulative, right? Like a binary success with a, a binary goal with a mini goal kind of makes you have success quickly. And so you want to do it again and do more and more and more and more. Yeah, I think um, I think if I were to parse it out a little bit more, if I could do a rewrite on this section, it would be, hey, if you need help getting started, this is an amazing way to get started. And once you have built up the muscles of, let's take writing as an example, of sitting down in the chair every day, no matter how you're feeling or you know, at, at whatever time that works for you, once you've built up those muscles and you've gotten used to like, writing a hundred words a day, that's when you can bring in deliberate practice and quality. That's when you can then start adding more complex things that maybe will accelerate your success versus just like, I'm going to write every single day, the end. Yeah. Without any. Well, I mean, just doing it in the ether, you can't improve without, like you said, feedback and deliberate practice and actually getting guidance. You're hundred percent right. So to sum it all up, this is the author's bullet point list on how to change from perfectionist to imperfectionism. Perfectionism and imperfectionism are 100% determined by what you care about. To be an imperfectionist and make excellent progress, all you need to do is manage your cares. If you follow this advice, I guarantee that you'll be happier with your life, he says, which immediately my hackles go up. He says, don't care about results, care about putting in the work. Don't care about problems, care about making progress despite them. Or if you must fix something, focus on the solution. Don't care what other people think. Care about who you want to be and what you want to do. Care less about doing it right. Care more about doing it at all. Don't care about failure. Care about success. Don't care about timing. Care about the task. In general, the idea is not to care so much about conditions and care more about what you can do right now to move forward. And again, he offers practical solutions to all of the things listed above. But let me tell you, they are vague and at times really superficial and almost silly. Although I do think there's value in the book overall. So I will leave it there and say that is the brief overview of how to be an imperfectionist, the new way to self-acceptance, fearless living, and freedom from perfectionism by Stephen Guise. And if you want to learn more about the author or read his many, many blog posts. You can go to stephenguise.com. That's Stephen with a P-H-G-U-I-S-E.com. Link in show notes. Great job, Misty. Thank you. Here we go. Did this book need to be written? Nope. (laughs) Let me tell you you something. Let me tell you something. (laughs) It does have good insights, but nothing groundbreaking. And I honestly think you could get this information with a few quick Google searches and a couple listicles. (laughs) Truly, truly. And I think there are enough 
books and material out there already on how to get over your fear of action that go so much deeper than this. So I'm going to give you a couple examples of books that we have covered, and I'll link to those episodes in show notes if you want to hear those, because I think they're just packed with value. But The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, or, and we haven't covered this book, but I want to, The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, which was written five years before this book was published. So that's why I say, like, I don't think this book needed to be published because Brene was out there being amazing about imperfectionism half a decade before this. Yeah, it's really. And she has an online course through Oprah that was really wonderful with that. Oh, I love that. At least she did. My friends and I did. It was really great. Did you try to put anything into practice from the book? Oh, yeah, baby. So criticisms aside, I did find that this book drilled into me that any kind of action toward a goal is better than none at all. So right now I'm in a really intensive nine-week writing workshop and there are hours of homework required every day. Like our teacher had to put a cap on two hours a day of homework because it's that intense. There are also like three or four hours of lectures to watch every week, reviewing classmates' homework, doing like detailed memos for them. And I was finding for the first few weeks that if I didn't have the full two hours to do homework, I felt like I shouldn't do it at all. Or like if I didn't complete every single day of homework, then I was missing out. But listening to this book the same time that I was having those thoughts helped me relax a little and say, listen, if I can do three out of five days of homework, then I'm still learning. So viewing success as progress gave me that kind of permission, which was really nice. If I can listen to one word of the two-hour lecture, that's, there you go. (laughs) Talton goes, welcome back, everybody. And I close my laptop and I'm like, I feel so good. (laughs) Did the author miss anything? Yeah, I, which we've already covered some of. I honestly had such a hard time connecting to his writing style and to the examples he used repeatedly in the book, mostly about going to the gym and asking women out. So something about the style, his style of writing felt self-righteous while at the same time coming off as naive in certain parts. And it felt redundant and over-explanatory, like he was trying to fill up more page space to meet some kind of word quota. Because again, this is only a 167-page book, right? It's not, it's like barely more than a novella. Like if you're really going to do a deep dive into imperfection, I would, I would recommend someone like Brene Brown, truly. Misty, who would you buy this book for and who would you never buy it for? I would buy this book for someone super young. So someone in high school or just getting into college, because I feel like that kind of, it could be really freeing when you have a massive workload and you feel like your whole future is at stake to just keep reminding yourself, like, as long as I'm progressing and I'm trying, that's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect every time. I also see someone super young because the tone and depth level of the material might land better with someone younger who has never heard of these concepts and his self-righteous tone might bother them less. Yeah. Listener challenge and homework. Do I have any homework? You do. So sorry, sorry, sorry for partying. So I want you to identify a task that you've been putting off because you haven't had the perfect amount of time or the perfect strategy to work on it. And instead, see how it feels to do a little work on it 
just for a couple of minutes. So the point is to see how progress feels instead of maybe completing the task and completing it perfectly. Okay. You got it. Okay. That's it, baby. I really look forward to doing that. Well, thank you, Misty. And thank you to Stephen Guys. And I hope everybody can really embrace being an Imler Bowenhammer. Yeah. And with that, may your Imler affectionism be be abundant. Yay! Go Help Yourself was produced by Misty Stinnett and Lisa Linky. Our theme song was written by the inimitable Matt Sav. Inimitable. There's nothing we love more than hearing from you. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. We're also at gohelpyourselfpodcast on Instagram and at ghypodcast on Twitter. And you can go old school and check out our website at gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. It basically is a fancy PowerPoint slide. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review because it helps other people find our show. You know who else needs to find it? Your friends. Tell all of your friends. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.